them, Lord, send me. And so I chose that passage that we might be prepared to go into the congregational meeting as those who were willing with an attitude, here I am, Lord, send me, send us, we're here, use us, again, uniquely positioned in the central part of New England, ready to go. And my thesis on the 31st was that it doesn't really matter where we are or even matter who we are, but what really matters is who we know. And at that instant when Isaiah was asked, who will I send? And he said, here I am, Lord, send me. He recognized God. He recognized who he knew. And he was ready to be used. And he did, in fact, offer himself. And he was used for the Lord. And I also showed... Uh, in Scripture, that there were others, particularly Saul on the road to Damascus, who was confronted by the Lord, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Well, that's, that account is recorded in Acts 9 and Acts 22 and Acts 26. But at Acts 26, when Paul is telling that account to the rioting people in Jerusalem, he adds a little extra. And what he adds to it is what Isaiah is all about and what we need to be all about. Jesus, he, he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul then said, what will you have me to do? When he recognized who the Lord was, game changer, he's now on path to be the greatest missionary that the Christian church has ever known. It was the pivotal point in his life and he turned, Lord, what will you have me to do? So that it doesn't matter where we are and it doesn't matter who we are, but what enormously matters is who we know. And so we made our way through the congregational meeting. And now I feel like this is the third piece. How do we wrap that up? Where does it land on us? And I believe that we need to recognize that even though it doesn't matter where we are and it doesn't matter who we are, but it matters fully who we know, once we know the Lord, we have to recognize that He uses common, ordinary people to do uncommon, extraordinary things, not in a natural way, because... If we sat in a room trying to contemplate to do God's will and to perform God's purposes and achieve God's goal, we could sit in that room for a million years and not concoct how best to do it. But God in a supernatural way could show us a way to do it way outside of our thinking. So we need to recognize that God uses common, ordinary people to do uncommon, extraordinary things in a supernatural way, and that includes us. Now, clarification. When I spoke with you on the 31st, the second piece, because I know you love me and I love you, and because this environment is very safe for me, I shared with you that I felt that God has led me to believe that I'm about leading millions of people to Jesus Christ. And I know that sounds audacious and presumptuous and all of that. And I know I even creep out when someone says, God told me or God spoke to me. 
But it was over a year ago, lying on my bed in the quiet of night with my head in the pillow, and Lord, here I am, send me. What are we going to do tomorrow? What are we going to do? And it just became clear to me. I did not hear words booming out of heaven, but it became clear to me that I'm 66 now. I was 65 then. I've got limited time. I'm on the, as a golfing buddy of mine says, I'm on the back nine. And um, what am I going to do? And the delight of my heart is to lead people to Christ. The grief of my soul is to see the culture swirling down the toilet bowl away from the Lord. And really, as many times as I've tried to find a solution, the solution to me is the gospel. It changes people from the inside out. We can't change people from the outside in. It's only the power of the gospel that can change people from the inside out. So I'm about the gospel. That's the delight of my heart. And Lord, let me use the remaining breaths that I have for that purpose. And, and so it was confirmed to me, as best as I know how, um, be about the gospel. I said, Lord, how many? <laughs> Thousands? Millions? Yeah, that's what was my experience. So I feel as if I'm led to be about millions coming to Christ. And I know that sounds presumptuous. I know that sounds bizarre. I certainly landed it on you on the 31st. I've relanded it on you. I don't want it to be a disconnect. I want you to be with me because I want you to have that same attitude. And I realized when I said it then and now, it was out of context and for you to really appreciate it, you need to understand the context. So Pastor Gary gave me this opportunity to come back. I was going to fill in what was left off in the truncated message on the 31st. And in thinking about it, I really feel like what I need to do is to give you my frame of reference, my context, why I said that to you and I fully believe it. And why you can say that too and fully believe it. And so to do that today in sort of an unsermon fashion, I just want to share with you some of my friends. What do I mean by that? Uh, I tried to think about this, but I don't really know the answer. It, it could be 10, 15 or more years ago that my wife gave me this book. I think Wally has one. It's, it's the one-year book of Christian history a Daily Glimpse into God's Powerful Work. It's broken out into 365, actually 66. They give you February 29th and there's an extra. But it's 366 daily readings, mostly of which are Christian testimonies. And for clearly all of 10 years, nearly every day, maybe 15 and maybe more, every morning with my devotions, I read sections of this book. And this poor book is... Um, it's, it's, it's pressed tree with ink on it. You can't really call it a book. It's worse than Todd's Bible. And um, every morning, I meet with my friends. And I start my day with my friends. And my friends are common, ordinary people that God used in a uncommon, extraordinary way through miraculous, fabulous, supernatural means to do unbelievable things. And these are the people I hang with. So that's the context out of which I came, my friends. 
And so I want to kind of tell you about some of my friends. And you can see these uncommon, ordinary folks like us who have shattered the expectations of humans for God's purposes. So I'm going to talk about a couple missionaries. I'll talk about a couple prayer people, a couple music people. And then I want to share with you what I think is the most unbelievable testimony of intertwined lives that God has ever delivered to us. And then we'll conclude. So let me share with you some missionaries. Adoniram Judson, who was born in 1788 in Walden, Massachusetts. And at the age of 25, he arrived in Burma, which is now the country of Myanmar. For the first six years, he did not have one convert. After 10 years, he had 18 converts. He persevered, and today there are over 2 million believers in Myanmar. And in the area where he ministered directly, the Karen people, 40% of those people claim faith in Christ. Next missionary is James Hudson Taylor. He was born in 1833 in, in uh, Yorkshire, England. At the age of 17 in 1849, through a night of prayer, he felt a call to missions in China. At the age of 21 in 1853, he sailed to China. He uh, got married there There were only 350 baptized believers that they were aware of at the time. He got sick and he had to return back to England. In 1865, he regrouped, gathered up more people, and went with 15 other missionaries to China. They called themselves the China Inland Mission, CIM. In 1895, those missionaries were now up to 641 missionaries. In 1934, when CIM peaked, they had 1,368 missionaries in China, and they were aware of 500,000 who were baptized. On July 20th, 1953, the Chinese communists kicked CIM out of China, and they believed at that time there were about a million believers in China. In 1980, they believed there were about 2 million believers in China, and in 2000, they believe there were 75 million believers in China. That's James Hudson Taylor, one of my friends. Rowland Bingham, he was from Canada, and his mission field was Central Africa, CIM, or SIM, Sudan Interior Mission. In 1893, he entered Nigeria with two other people who caught malaria and died. He didn't. He had to go back to Canada. In 1898, he reorganized another mission group. He got sick, and he had to go back. The third time in 1902, perseverance. This is over numerous years. He persevered, and he went back to, to Central Africa, and he was able to stay. And in 1906, they became a significant enough presence to be able to call themselves SIM, Sudan Interior Mission. Today, there are 1,800 missionaries under SIM in 25 nations. They believe they are ministering to over 1 million people in the 2,500 SIM churches that they've established. Common, ordinary people. Um, the next one, 
Anyone have a Southern Baptist background? Oh, come on. <laughs> Southern Baptist background. Lottie Moon. Do you know who Lottie Moon is? Okay, yes. Okay, we have at least one person who knows who Lottie Moon. Charlotte Diggs Moon. In 1840, she was born in Charlottesville, west of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, she was raised in a Southern Baptist family. Intelligent gal, but only four foot three inches tall. We had a roar ago. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to have Aurora stand up, and you know Aurora. Now, Aurora is kind of blowing the deal for me because she's had a growth spurt. Aurora, come over here. Come over here. You're on. Okay, just turn around. Stand right here. Aurora is four foot eight inches tall, give or take a centimeter. Okay? Charlotte Diggs Moon, four foot three. So that would be Aurora's nose. Okay, that's all I need you for now. All that angst thing for a week long. Thank you, hon. Charlotte Diggs Moon was four foot three. And she had a keen intellect. And at 17, she was skeptical about the gospel. She's trying to intellectually figure out the gospel. But she came to Christ after working through all the possibilities. At age 33 in 1873, she was called to go to mission work as the first unmarried woman missionary in China. And she went and uh, ministered with the gospel to poor people. Four foot three, went by herself. She, in, in 1888, persuaded the women of the Southern Baptist Convention to take a Christmas offering for the poor people to whom she was ministering. And it became known as the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. We have a head shaking here. I'm so thankful there's at least one person. In 1912, at the age of 72, Lottie Moon, who was working and helping the people in a famine in her area in China, and her cupboard was always open and she would skip meals, she was now sick and she had to come back to the States. And unfortunately, in the ship outside of Japan, she died of complications from her starvation at 72. But the Lottie Moon Christmas offering continued. And I hope I can tell you this. Through 1995, and I can only expect the number to be bigger. This is the best data I got. Through 1995, they, in the Southern Baptist Convention, had collected $1.5 billion because of Four foot three, Lottie Moon. One of my friends. She's not extraordinary. But God used her. Let me tell you about some prayer people and answers to prayer. 1856, there was a tea party held, just a regular old tea party of folks in Ulster, Ireland. And a man, James McQuilkin, was asked to go. And he sat next to a lady who was visiting. And the lady confronted him with the gospel. And it kind of threw him off his pegs. And for a week or two, he had to deal with the gospel. But he eventually came to Christ and was saved. 
In September of 1857, with three friends, they committed to start praying, and they went to the local school once a week and prayed for every person in their town. It was Ahogil, Ulster Island. They prayed by name for every person in their town. And they continued to do that week after week after week. In 19 months, a revival broke out, which has been recorded in history as the Great Ulster Revival. Over 100,000 people came to Christ. Churches were filled to overflowing. Bars were closed because people weren't drinking. Distillers went out of business. The courts were empty, no cases. The jails were empty, no criminals. It changed the culture because this man and two of his friends, three of his friends, started praying in September 1857. Across the ocean, and I think the Spirit was moving unbelievably in 1857, because Jeremiah Lanfear, who was born just outside of Danbury, Connecticut in New York, came to um, New York City in the mercantile trade uh, when he was 33 he went to the Brick Presbyterian Church in southern Manhattan, and he came to Christ. And he felt called to street evangelism, which he did. And because of his presence in the street, he was hired by the North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street. Fulton Street's down near uh, the Twin Towers, southern, south part of Manhattan. He tried to get people to come to the church, but they just weren't coming. So he did what Paul did after meeting Christ, and he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? That was his prayer. And what he felt led to do was to start a prayer meeting of businessmen in downtown New York City. So he printed out handbills, and he circulated all the handbills, and on February 23, 1857, was going to be their first meeting from 12 to 1 on the third floor of the North Dutch Reformed Church. At 12 o'clock, he was upstairs alone, kneeling down. After 10 minutes, no one. After 20 minutes, still no one. After 30 minutes, he heard the door open downstairs and a person walk up the stairs and, and kneel down next to him. By the end of the hour, six people total had showed up. That was the first meeting. The next week, they had 20 people. The next week, they had 40 people. The next week, they had 100-plus people. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen every day were praying in New York City. All the churches were full. Firehouses, police departments, full. It was believed that over a million people came to Christ in what was referred to as the Fulton Street Prayer Meeting Revival. One person started that. Common, ordinary guy. Let me tell you about some music, folks, if you're a music person. The first one, Charlotte Elliott. She was born in England in 1789. At 30 years old, Charlotte came down with a very debilitating disease, sickness, caused her great pain, debilitating and then the depression followed afterwards. Her family had a friend, Dr. Caesar Milan, and they asked him to come to talk with her. And he came and he asked her, have you experienced God's peace in your difficulties? And these words shook her. 
that she wasn't experiencing peace and wondered if she could ever experience peace. And she mulled on that for a couple of days and then called Dr. Milan back. And he graciously came back and she said, I want to be saved. I want to come to Jesus, but I don't know how. And he replied, come to him just as you are. And she did. She got peace, but she still had pain and discomfort. She couldn't go out all the time. And subsequent to that, there was a church function that she really, really wanted to attend. She just couldn't go. And in her depression, she sat down, got a pen and a paper, and she started to write. Just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Charlotte Elliott. She had it published in a Christian paper. It circulated around England. A wealthy woman saw it, was touched and moved by it, and printed out handbills and circulated the handbills all around England. Dr. Milan got a handbill. He looked at it. He read it and thought, hmm, that could help Charlotte. I'll bring it to her. And he did. And you can only imagine how surprised both of them were when she recognized it was her hymn. That hymn circulated all around England. Her brother, who was a pastor in England, at the end of his career, commented to her that he felt her hymn ministered to people more than his ministry ministered to people all of his professional life. The hymn circulated through England. It came to the United States in 1934 in Charlotte, North Carolina. An evangelistic meeting took place held by Mordecai Ham. And some of you may be picking up. But there were numerous people who came forward while Just As I Am was being played. And one was William Franklin Graham, Jr., Billy Graham at age 16. And he recognized in his life the power of that hymn as it was to him. And if you're aware of his crusades, you know that that was really the calling card invitation song at the end of every one of his sermons, just as I am without one plea. He preached publicly from 1947 to 2005. It's estimated that he spoke to approximately 210 million people directly in 185 countries. If you add to it the live audiences on radio and TV, it's up to 2.2 billion. And it's estimated that 3.2 million people came to Christ at his crusades when they played, just as I am. That one gets me. Charlotte Elliott, common, ordinary person who wasn't even on the top of her game. She was under the depression and the weight of a horrible situation in life and she merely grabbed a pen and wrote her heart's 
thoughts onto the pen. How many millions of people she has touched through the years. Another person with music who's touched people is Isaac Watts. He was born in 1674 in Southampton, England. At 18 years old, he wrote his first hymn. Before he was 20, he had written a 210-page hymnal that was in wide use. He was less than what would you'd call a common, ordinary guy. He was five foot tall, and description is he had a really big head, and at the time they wore wigs and he had goofy eyes. He was just, let's say, unattractive. He proposed to a girl, and she said to him, in these really cruel words, I like the jewel, but I don't like the setting. He never got married. He never really got along well, and he was able to live with a friend for the last 34 years of his life. He wrote over 600 hymns. His hymn writing impacted the worship in the Christian church in the late 1600s and early 1700s. O God, our help in ages past, joy to the world, and when I survey the wondrous cross, which we sang moments ago, I was moved with the last words of that love of love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, and isn't that what we're about? Here I am, Lord, send me. We get those words from Isaac Watts hundreds of years ago. He's reached gazillions of people were still singing his hymns and being moved by it. Um, sort of a funny twist on Isaac Watts. Um, I tried to verify it, and in all my history reading, I believe it's so, but I believe in the Battle of Lexington, uh, April 19th, 1775, when they were lining up, the pastor who was working with his group of militiamen, um, they were getting ready, and they didn't have wadding for the guns, with the black powder guns. You have to, I guess put the powder in, then you put the ball down, then you put the wadding on. He didn't have the wadding, so they grabbed Watts hymnals and they were tearing pages out of the hymnals for the people to use as wadding. And so the cry at the firing line was, Give them Watts, boys! The fact being that Isaac Watts had an influence that had reached into the churches in the colonies in the 1700s. And that was part of their... Um, their experience. Fanny Crosby, I'm sure you all know of her, born in 1820, just outside of uh, Albany. When she was six weeks old, she was mistreated, for lack of better description, and hot poultices were put on her eyes, and she was made blind the rest of her life. She clearly was uh, a phenomenon of a person, but in terms of the horsepower under the engine. I mean, her experience, she was a common, ordinary person. In 1861, she started writing her first hymns, um, Christian hymns, because in autumn of 1850, she went to revival meetings at the 30th Street Methodist Church in New York City. And she came forward during the singing of a hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, an Isaac Watts hymn. 
And that's why she, that was part of her experience coming forward. She wrote over 9,000 hymns in her time. She died at 95 in 1915. Blessed Assurance, Rescue the Perishing, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross, Praise Him, Praise Him, To God Bleed the Glory. She's affected numerous people, common, ordinary person that God used in an uncommon, extraordinary way, in a supernatural way. Now I want to tell you about the most unbelievable testimony of several people interwoven. It's my favorite. We start out with a man, Mitsuo Fuchida. He was born in 1902. He was in Japan, and he was an aviator in Japan. He was a famous aviator in Japan, so famous that he was the one who led the raid against Pearl Harbor. He was the one who was ahead of the 360 planes and cried, Torah, 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 time to go in and bomb. He was involved in other uh, military campaigns throughout. He didn't die. He finished the war as a high-ranking aviator, and he didn't commit suicide. He retired to a farm north of Tokyo and lived sort of in ignominy aside from the fact that every time that they had war crime trials conducted by and promoted by General MacArthur and others, they would call him. He was never indicted, but he always was called as a witness, and he was always getting pushed in his face how horrible were the prison camps of the Japanese, how horrible they treated the American prisoners, and, the, and, and uh, he had to deal with that over and over and over again. So let's leave Mitsuo off to the side. Let me put you on a separate but related track. On December 8, 1941, Jacob DeShazer in the Army was peeling potatoes at an Army camp in California. And he heard over the radio that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. And he was just incensed at once that his comrades were killed. And he had an immediate hate for the Japanese and he wanted to realize that hate. And shortly thereafter, December 8th, an offer came to join a very special secret force, very risky, but it would be against the Japanese, and he volunteered. And he was sent to Pensacola, and at Pensacola he met Jimmy Doolittle and other aviators who were going to be part of the Jimmy Doolittle raid of April 18, 1942. And that raid was flying B-25 Mitchell two-engine bombers, medium-sized bombers, off of the aircraft carrier Hornet. It's very difficult to take normal fighters off of carriers, but they were going to take bombers off. And so 26 crews of four trained in Pensacola doing short airfield takeoffs with B-25s. They lightened them up as much as they could, and they got them west. They got on the Hornet in, uh, it was either San Francisco, either um, Los Angeles or San Diego. I'm not sure where they went out of. But on April 1st, they pulled out of port. The aviators knew they were on a special mission, but they didn't know what it was. When they pulled away from port, they were told that they were going to go bomb Japan. 
And they traveled secretively for 18 days. On the 18th of April, 1942, they woke up in the morning. They unfortunately bumped into a fishing boat, Japanese fishing boat, and they were afraid that their location was going to be disclosed. So even though they were hundreds of miles where, from where they wanted to fly, they decided to get the planes in the air because what they were going to do is fly over Japan, drop bombs, keep flying west, and land in safe territory in China. But because they had to take off earlier, they didn't have the fuel and not many made it. And uh, Jacob DeShazer was the bombardier of the 26th and the last plane that went off the deck of the Hornet. They flew their mission. They ran out of gas. They had to bail out over China. The next day he was captured. And for the next 40 months till the end of the war, he was imprisoned in Japanese prison camps. Horrible treatment for 40 months. After 26 months, Jacob the Shazer asked the guards for a Bible. He had a memory of his mother telling him stories from the Bible and the peace from the Bible, and he asked for a Bible. And they had one in the camp, and they gave it to him and said, you only got three weeks to read this. We're taking it from you in three weeks. And so he read it. He, every moment he had, he read it. And as a result of reading it, God's word did not return void and he became a Christian. And while he was in captivity, the hatred, the abject hatred he had for the Japanese melted to love. And he recognized that he was better off in the swallow of his prison than they were in the pomp of their guarding him. And he purposed that if he could get from the camp and out of that mess and go home, he would come back as a missionary. And in fact, he did. He was released at the end of the war. He went home. He got married. He went to Bible college. And he went back to Japan as a missionary to the Japanese. Let him sit for a second. Margaret Peggy Covell. Margaret Peggy Covell. Her parents were missionaries in Japan prior to the war. But when the war started, they had to flee and they fled to Manila. In Manila, they were okay for a while until the Japan, Japanese conquered Manila. And so they fled north to the town of Baguio. And they hid really in the hills of Baguio, but the Japanese fled up to Baguio. And they were captured. Her parents were captured. And because they had a small radio with them, they were considered to be spies and they were tried quickly and set to be executed. They asked their captors for a half hour so that they could read the Bible and pray together. And their captors gave them a half hour. Then they were brought forward, blindfolded, hands tied behind their backs, put on their knees, and swords cut their heads off while they were praying. Peggy, the daughter, was being schooled in the States and did not know where her parents were the whole time. But the story came back to her that her parents were treated that way and prayed before they were killed. And she initially was shocked. She initially had hate. But then for her, the transforming love of Christ overcame her and she felt, well, if that's the way my parents acted to the Japanese, how could I do anything less? So she purposed to do whatever she could to be kind to the Japanese. And she found out that there was a prison camp 
on the border of Colorado and Utah that had prisoners. So she went to the camp and she was given permission to be kind to the Japanese and help them and do what she could for them. And she befriended the Japanese and just helped them. Back to Mitsuo Fushido. In 1947, he was so fed up with being called to be a witness in war trials that he wanted to prove that the Americans were just as horrible, that war is war and they were just as horrible and wicked and cruel as the, the Japanese were in their camps. And he heard that people were coming back from the United States, the war was over, and the prisoners, the Japanese prisoners, were coming back and would be in port. So he went to port, Yokosuku Harbor. And he was there when 150 Japanese prisoners came down the plank. And to his surprise, he saw a friend, Kazuo Kanegasaki. He was a man he was in the service with uh, in the late 30s. And they thought he was gone because in the Battle of Midway, his ship went down and they never saw him or knew of him while he got captured and got taken to Pearl Harbor and then brought to the States. And he had been in prison camp at the camp where Peggy Covell was. Mitsufushido confronted Kenigasaki when he got to shore. And after pleasantries, hit him right on it. How did they treat you? How was your time in the United States? And Kenigasaki had to honestly tell him that they were kinder than anything you could ever imagine. And it was because of Peg Couple. And it absolutely unsettled Mitsuo Fuchita. He couldn't deal with it. He, the other prisoners came by, same testimony, Peggy Covell. And so Mitsuo Fujita left the dock and went back home. And he couldn't figure out how to handle his hate. In the fall of 1947, he was called back to Tokyo for war crime trials. And getting off the train... He was handed a track. Man Timothy Peach handed him a track. And the track was a four-panel testimony of Jacob DeShazer, who said, and the track was entitled, I was a prisoner of Japan. It was printed in Japanese. And Mitsuo Fuchida, on his ride home from the war trials, took out the track and read it. And it was the testimony of Jacob DeShazer, who was captured who was the one who said it, I want to kill the Japanese, who volunteered for the Doolittle Raid, who got trapped for 40 months, but read a Bible, and his heart changed, and now was a missionary in occupied Japan. And again, Mitsuo Fuchida could not handle looking at Christian love. He couldn't handle it. He was the one who had killed so many people, led people into battle, was everything that a Japanese soldier was, but he couldn't come to grips and balance hate and love. And because Jacob DeShazer's testimony said he read the Bible, 
Mitsuo Fuchida went and bought one. And he spent time and he read it. And when he got to Luke 23, at the crucifixion of Christ, when Christ said, forgive them for they know not what they do, Mitsuo Fuchida came to Christ and was saved. And the word got out that he was no longer bitter and the word got out that he was a Christian and he was asked to testify and he merely told his story and throngs of people started to come here, Mitsuo Fuchida. And he was matched up to Jacob DeShazer and you can only imagine that reunion. And their testimonies and their meetings attracted thousands and Billy Graham invited them to come to the States, and they spoke at Billy Graham Crusades in the States. Uncommon, extraordinary, supernatural use of common, ordinary people. So that's what we are. We're just common, ordinary people. But we know God can do just crazy stuff through us. Well, those are my friends. So when I come and tell you I think God can use me to lead a million people to Christ, that's, those are my buddies. You know, the, there's, there's the saying that, that bad company corrupts good morals. Well, good company encourages right living. You know, it, it, it works that way. Proverbs 13.20 was a a proverb that when we had kids growing up in my home, we would tell them every day, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. If you're with the wise, you'll grow wise. You'll just, it will just rub off on you. And this has been my experience. It has rubbed off on me. And I hope you now understand what I said. It's not just me, though. It's you. It's us. That we as individuals and we as this church that doesn't have a church, but we're acting like it, this can be us if we just trust the Lord. I don't know how this could happen. I don't have a rational explanation of how this might fall out in the next week or month or year. But if we trust God, it can happen supernaturally. That we are called to follow. Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. It's a phrase that we've dealt with. Some of us have said yes, some of us said no, some of us have been in between, but it's a phrase we're aware of. And as I was thinking of this, how, how would it look for us if we did in fact say, here I am, Lord, send me? What would we look like? What would we think like? What would we talk like? Where would we be? What would we do? What would we have to do? I think there's a different way of looking at it. And I'm going to share with you in closing here a very loose analogy. So don't put me under a theological microscope here. But I want to share with you a loose analogy. I think explains, here I am, Lord, send me. The Lord has his foot on the accelerator pedal. And we have our foot on the brake. And when we come to the place of saying, here I am, Lord, send me, we take our foot off the brake. It's time to strap on and hold on, and God will do the rest. 
And so that's what we have. That's what we have to do. I mean, can we hand out a track like Timothy Peach? Can we show love like Peggy Covell? Can we give someone a Bible like the person in the prison gave Jacob the Shazer? Can we show love like Dr. Milan showed to Charlotte? Can, can you pen your deepest hurts onto a piece of paper like Charlotte did? It's common, ordinary people like us through whom God can do uncommon, extraordinary things in a supernatural way. You know what it is to live like that? I am so fortunate in the last year, I get up in the morning, come visit my friends. I say, Lord, there's still tread on the tire on this 66-year-old year body. Let's go. I don't know how it's going to pan out, Lord, today, but let's do it. Let's, let's go. And any little thing could be the thing that in centuries, Isaac Watts was 1674, it could be centuries that God in a supernatural way will, will, will do great things. But it's what's before us. And so I challenge you to join me so I don't feel like I'm a nut and say, Lord, use me to lead millions of people to Christ. And let's just see as a church what might happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us people who have walked with you as an encouragement. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that you'd use us, that you'd give us the joy and the privilege of seeing your hand in our lives, working for your glory. I pray for this church body, this group of us, or a church, trying to be a church without a church, that you just use us for your purposes. You'd guide us. Be glorified through us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.